Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure, and in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 15, season 1, and today I speak to Dr. Damien Shields, an archaeologist, historian and writer. Damien has done a lot of work on the Irish and their service in Union Army forces during the US Civil War. He spoke to me about what motivated Irish immigrants into America to enlist and fight in the Union forces. He spoke to me from his office in Cork. Damien, welcome to the Combat Morale podcast. Could you start by introducing yourself and how you became interested in the Irish and the United States Civil War? Thanks a million, Tom, for having me. Um, yeah, I suppose it's it's a relatively long story. I, I'm an archaeologist and historian, but I many years ago was a curator in the National Museum of Ireland where we were working on the major um, exhibition in Collins Barracks in Dublin called Soldiers and Chiefs Military History Exhibition from 1550 to the present day. So it still remains the largest exhibition that the National Museum of Ireland have ever put on in a single space. But one of the galleries in that dealt with the Americas um, and particularly Irish service in the United States military. And I was particularly had a particular responsibility for that. And when I was doing the research, I'd always had an interest in the American Civil War. My background would be things like battlefield and conflict archaeology anyway and when I was looking at it it became really apparent that the scale of service was kind of in the same region as Irish service in the first world war but it just felt to me like there was a, a huge gulf in knowledge within Ireland between those two topics at the time um, and so I started reading an awful lot more and then an awful lot more about it um, and it kind of owes its its genesis I suppose to where it became an obsession because one weekend I decided it'd be rightly or wrongly a good idea to start a blog and so I developed a website which is dominated my existence for the last 11 years, I would say, called the Irish and the American Civil War. Um, and so I, I really began exploring it from that point of view. Um, and I started off on a very kind of basic standard level, you know, looking at kind of famous incidents like the Irish Brigade at Fredericksburg and all of these things that people know. But as, as the time passed, I became more and more interested in really diving into the individual experiences and seeing what those type of experiences could tell us about wider Irish America and Irish American service. Um, and so that's the way I've continued. I did a couple of books on it. Um, and then I have been building up um, a database of correspondence written by um, Irish American servicemen and based on submissions by widows and dependents of deceased servicemen. Widows and dependents would often give their letters of, of their husbands or sons into the US Pension Bureau in order to receive a pension. And over a number of years, I collected a database of over 1,100 of those letters and decided, um, again, whether this was a clever move or not, I enjoyed it anyway, to go back and do a PhD in that, which I just, just finished up there actually about a week ago. So um, yeah, I suppose that's the kind of the start and the end, but it's still a massively dominant feature of everything I do now is, is just this Irish. I think you've touched on this question already, but what is your source mystery? source material for this study yeah so primarily because i'm based um a bit i was based in england for the last three years i'm in ireland again now so because i'm away from the united states i don't have access to the type of archives that we all like to get our hands on when we go into archives so my main source has been the uh, digitized files of the widows and dependent of union servicemen so it's a, a set of files that grew out of a of a act of 1862 that was brought in by the United States military in order to try and 
offer some comfort to men who were enlisting that if they died or were maimed, um, that there would be a pension there for them or their family. And so widows and dependent parents in particular could claim these in the decades after the war. So um, it became a massive, massive part of the federal budget. Um, it took up a huge element of American resources and becomes a huge political issue in the late 19th century because so many people are claiming them. And so you get a lot of these working class, often illiterate Irish Americans are applying for these pensions, are giving you huge detail about their lives. And then if they're looking to prove something like a parent may be trying to prove that their son had sent them money during their service, or a widow may be trying to prove that a man who served under an alias was actually her husband, they will actually hand in the letters that the man wrote to them during the war. Uh, and it's, it's, an, it's a whole area of correspondence, actually, that wasn't known to have existed, really, in the scale that it does. And it's been one of the hard-to-reach aspects of Irish-American military service is what the ordinary privates and corporals and sergeants actually thought about their service because so few of their letters survive, but they do survive in this sort. And they're all held in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., but um, about 160,000 of them, which is around about 13% of the total, have been digitized in chronological order. I went through them looking for Irish guys. That was the kind of start of but a real incredibly rich resource because it contextualizes the letters. So you have these letters, but you know about the people then as well. You often get 10, 20, 30 years of their family lives. You have this real fantastic foundation to build any analysis. So we're going to talk about the motivations of Irish emigrants to America to enlist and participate in the Union Army during the Civil War. Before we start, could you give us a broader outline of the Irish community in America for the outbreak of the uh, Civil War in 1861? Yeah, no problem. So there were colossal numbers of Irish in the United States um, on the eve of the war. So about there's about 1.6 million Irish born who are living in the United States just as the war is beginning, uh, largely because of the huge immigration followed the Irish famine that uh, breaks out in the 1840s. So you have this massive outpouring of people into the United States. But there had been a lot of people there previous to that. So there had been an ongoing increase in Irish immigration after the Napoleonic Wars to the United States simply building through those decades. And so by the eve of the war, you have quite remarkable numbers. So for example, one in every four people in New York City at this period had been born in Ireland. So again, and it's it, it's an important, I'm sure we'll touch on it later, Irish born is not a marker of Irish ethnicity because Irish people tended to step migrate. So you had a lot of Irish who might have left Ireland in the 1830s or early 1840s, and they might have lived for a decade in England, they might have lived for a decade in Canada, and then move into the United States. So you have a lot of children who were born in England, Scotland, Wales, Canada, United States who see themselves as ethnically Irish. So we have to imagine this huge number of 1.6 million is being swelled by, by the, the next generation. And so all of them are living in these enclaves. And although they come from a fairly rural part of Ireland, most of the emigrants, they tend to be incredibly urban when they go to the United States. So they tend to be low skilled. They don't have, say, the, the, the range of of artisan ability that say the German immigrants would have had. So they tend to congregate in a lot of the poorer areas of major urban city. And that has a major impact when the war comes because most of those major urban industrialized cities are in states that would remain in the Union. So uh, the huge bulk of the Irish immigrants are living in the North, if you like, as it becomes later. And so they're having a massive influence on major cities. So New York is the biggest one. The next largest population would be in Philadelphia um, and, and then kind of down through places like Boston and out in the Midwest, but particularly up in that kind of Atlantic seaboard of the East Coast is where they're heartless. And that's the situation. They had experienced significant levels of uh, what was called nativism, anti-Irish sentiment during the 1850s, largely uh, because so many of 
them were Catholic Irish at this time. Um, and because they were so poor and had such a huge impact on the cities that they were moving into it en masse in that 10, 15 years before the outbreak of the war, there had been a backlash um, against them from a lot of local political movements, um, the Know Nothing Party being the most famous um, of the, these kind of nativists. And so that was kind of the scenario at the start of the war. They, they were seen by other as others by a lot of, of people in the United States, overwhelmingly um, focused in the North, quite poor, probably the, the poorest identifiable white block of people you could pick out in, in Northern society at that. And that's kind of where they sat when the guns start firing on Fort Sumter and Aiding. And you've touched on this already, but why did they emigrate to America? Why did they end up in America? And did they also come from both traditions within Ireland in terms of the Protestant loyalist tradition, but also the Catholic, quotes national? Yeah, so so there had been, and it's it's one of the kind of forgotten stories and overused word. I use it a lot myself because I think it's relevant to the Civil War, but the, the Protestant Irish tradition in the United States, particularly in the Civil War, is, is kind of being left behind. So, so we have this image, just to deal with that, of, of Protestant immigration to the United States being in the 18th century, this kind of idea, the Scots-Irish out in the Appalachian Mountains and Tennessee and everything like that. And that certainly ha- occurred. But it's very important to recognise that the periods, the 10, 15, 20 years, the economic downturn caused by things like the recession after the Napoleonic Wars, things like the, the famine, impacts the Protestant community in Ireland. And they are emigrating in numbers previously unseen as well. The reason that they've been lost, if you like, in the history is because they're just completely subsumed by this wave of Catholic Irish immigration current. So um, there are more Protestants first generation and second generation Irish Protestants in the United States in the 1860s than in any other previous time in its history. But it is it is this economic downturn that is driving people out of the country and particularly the famine. But I think it's important to note as well, it's not the very, very poorest people because it's not cheap to go to the United States, right? So um, if you were really poor, you couldn't leave Ireland. So you may end up dying in something like the famine. If you had a, a few bob, you might be able to get as far as Britain. Um, but so it tends to be people who, who, who tend to be doing a bit better who can go to the United States. But when they get to the United States, they're still the very poorest people in society. So it's all relative. And, and what you see when they're going over there is you immediately have this pattern goes throughout the 19th century and it sustains their communities. They remain very ethnically cohesive, the Irish American community, because you have a pattern of chain migration. And you see this in Protestant communities, Irish Protestant communities and Catholic, where people are um, working for a few years, um, sometimes decades, and they are sending money back to Ireland to finance the trips of other people from their family and their community. And so a lot of them are trying to, if, if you like, recreate their home communities, their home hubs, bring them, bring Ireland to the United States. Uh, and that's something that you see huge numbers. So a lot of areas are beginning to get even distinctly regional identity. For example, in the Five Points, a famous slum in New York, you have a lot of Kerry people who are living within a few blocks. The Seventh Ward in New York becomes particularly associated with Cork immigrants. So you, ha- you have all of this kind of regionality kind of feeding into them. And so we come to the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861. And why did this community enlist in the Union Army? And was and did their status as immigrants into the United States shape that decision? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of elements to that, right? So one of the things I think it's important to note is that the Irish had a traditional military. So when when the guns started firing on Fort Sumter, which was a Union, uh, a United States held spark, the garrison inside that of United States regular soldiers, there were more men who'd been born in Ireland than the United States garrison, right? So the, the regular military in the United States is dominated by immigrants and particularly dominated by Irish people before, during and after the American. And I think that's actually a legacy that comes out of service in the British military, because the Irish had, had a tradition in 1830, there were more Irish than English men in the British army. And so I think when times are, are tough economically, 
the military is a good option. And times were pretty tough economically in the late 1850s and early 1860s. Um, there had been a pa the panic of 1857 had led to an awful lot of, of unemployment in the north. And then actually the secession crisis is called when the southern states begin to withdraw from the union. It causes mass unemployment in the industrialized in all of the areas that the Irish are working. The thousands of factory working places like Philadelphia, and New York, the leather, the shoe workers, where a lot of Irish would have worked in Massachusetts, they're all being thrown out. Of it. OK, so that's a big, important kind of background factor to it. There is another major factor to it, though, uh, and it's one that's probably not been as well understood as 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 um, as we can understand it now from looking at it. And that there's a real belief, and you see it with a lot of immigrants, almost from the minute they step off the boat in the United States, that they are part of the American project, that the American Republic is seen as a unique worldwide phenomenon at this period where men um, can rise, and specifically men, where, where, where you have opportunities to progress in life. So even if you're in a pretty tough situation economically, you could be living in, in, in slums in a tenement, sharing your one bedroom with, with uh, innumerable people. But there, there is a feeling that you have more freedom, more opportunity in the United States than you do you would have ever had in Ireland or even Scotland or England or wherever. And that instills in an awful lot of these people a real sense of duty towards what they often then refer to as their country. So you see that in a lot in their letters. You see it from recent immigrants who've just come off the boat a year or two. You see it from a lot of these immigrants who may have been, you know, 10 or 11, 12 immigrating around the time of the famine who were growing to adult to the United States, that they see their Irish communities in the United States as part of the American project. It's their bit of it. Even if some other people don't acknowledge that they have a right to it, they see them as having that. Like, I, I mean, the work I've done now would, would, would flow contrary to some of the, what would be seen as the pre, what is the pre-existing scholarship in the area. So uh, Susanna, who I was mentioning there now, she, she would very much see the Irish as kind of losing all faith in the war from about 1863 and that they kind of throw it off, that they've always got this conflicting Irish identity and American identity. And I don't see that at all. She didn't have the letters. Like when you have the letters, they're it's really important i have a really good example of a guy from sligo he's literally off the boat and he's talking about that he hopes that they draft he's writing back to his father in sligo town trying to get them over and he's writing back saying i hope they draft all the young irish lads landing straight off the dock because there's too many people hanging around here when they should be off fighting for their you no know, you get it straight away they're just it's amazing and you see it everywhere i've done work on scottish soldiers it's not an irish catholic scottish soldiers they're off the boat bang straight away they're they, they see this as their kind of big opportunity I think because they're they were so used to the constraints of like a class system that they, they they felt they could never get anywhere because of you know the the landlord system or whatever. Even if their, their circumstances might individually be worse in the states, there was that that kind of possibility, almost the hope that was there. And it, it's it yeah they do they do perform really well. The result and so you have this kind of combination of factors, and they're not in any way mutually exclusive, but they're the two biggest things that drive men into the military civil the economic um, economic suffering. And it turns into economic opportunity as the war progresses, the amount of money that's served, and this idea of of duty towards the, the very distinct American Irish identity. And during the Civil War, the Union Army maintained a, a largely exclusively volunteer base rather than the conscription. Am I correct? It effectively worked out like that. So I, I suppose it's it's worth noting that when it comes to the war, Irish service is overwhelmingly for the Union for for a lot of the reasons that that I spoke about earlier in terms of the, the demographics. So so um, it just to, to, to give the kind of bald numbers, I suppose in and around 180,000 Irish born men serve for the Union. 
that compares to 20,000 men for the Confederate the work of Professor David Gleason, and that gives us those numbers um, for, for the South. So it's about it's about it's about nine uh, nine to one. Um, in addition, you have about another in the in the North about my estimate about another 70,000 children of Irish immigrants, be they English, Scottish, Canadian, or American-born who start. So you've about a quarter of a million Irish in. And yeah, it's an overwhelmingly volunteer-based uh, program. So they they expand the regular military, but it's always pretty small numbers. The Irish are continually attracted to, to that service through it. Um, they also um, expand the naval service. So about 20% of the entire Union Navy is Irish-born. Um, point. But the volunteers, the guys who are enlisting for two to three-year terms at the start of the war, are the real, um, if you like, meat of the, the, the Union military effort. They do bring in uh, conscription as the war progresses because you know we have the, the the usual everybody thinks the war is going to be over fairly fast um at the start uh and so everybody's keen to have have their cut off it for 30 60 90 days a lot of the, the units in the first major battle of the war are militia units serving for a 90 day term and uh, what you get as it becomes increasingly apparent in 1862 that this is actually going to be a bloodbath that Obviously, people are a bit more reluctant to enlist. And actually, the Pension Act comes in in 1862, partly in a response to this, partly to say to like married men and things, oh, come and join and we look after your family if anything happens. It's part of the reason it comes in. Um, and so from late 1862, they begin to start things like throwing money at to try and get to the start. Um, and I suppose as people aren't doing that in sufficient numbers, they bring in a couple of different measures to try and bring in subscri- uh, conscription. So... In 1863, in the summer of 1863, is when the main one, the Enrollment Act, the draft, and it, 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 the Confederacy had actually brought it in before that date, but the Union bring it in in 1863. It causes, in July of 1863, when they run the first draft in New York, it creates, causes a riot, which is largely Irish-led, largely led by working-class Irish New York against the draft, where they target um, people who they see as responsible for it, including African-Americans, and there's significant racist um, uh, uh, violence during that outbreak. And so they run, they do run a number of drafts during the war, but in fact, very few men who were ever drafted ever serve. It's quite interesting because there were so many loopholes to get out of it. So very few of them um, are ever held to service, only a tiny proportion. And what you see instead that develops from 1863 on in particular is this thing called substitution. So if, if I was drafted but I didn't want to serve, um, I could early on pay a, a, what was called a commutation fee, or I could look to get you to serve for me. I could pay you to serve. And that's where you see you see far, you see see more substitutes, in fact, than you do men who are drafted. And you see more what are called bounty volunteers. So every town um, and congressional district had a quota that they had to fill as the war progressed. And if they didn't meet that quota, then they were going to be subject to a draft. So what a lot of municipal districts did was they spent the money to get the men into their town cities to enlist for them to, to meet their quota. And it's here that you see a hugely um, significant number of immigrants are willing to do this. And a lot of Irish, um, they become these substitutes, they become these bounty volunteers. So much more Irish do that than are ever drafted in the They see it as an economic opportunity. And you have a lot of men who are actually leaving Ireland specifically with the intent of doing that because you, you can make a number of years salary off the, off the back of, of risking your life in that fashion. That's kind of, you have this, and it's been seen as quite a big divide, I suppose, in American Civil War historiog- historiography, these kind of early war, you know, that have always been seen traditionally as ideologically motivated volunteers of 1861, 1862, and then these kind of mercenary bounty men who come in in 1863, 1864, 
1865 who have absolutely no interest in anything, only kind of swindling people. And there's been kind of that very binary um, view that's been taken. Actually, I don't think that's actually the reality of the situation at all, but that is kind of the way the war evolved. So what units did the Irish uh, join? Did they join specifically geographically uh, raised um, formations? So, so if you want to find the real intense um, concentrations of the Irish, it, it maps onto their population uh, distribution in, in the north. And specifically, I, I spend most of my time researching guys in the northern military. So New York, again, is the state where they serve um, most out of. And they are much more spread across units, um, across arms and branches of the service than, say, the Germans are. The German, who are the other comparably sized immigrant group in the United States at this date, they're the two big um, immigrant groups in America in the mid-19th century. The Germans tend to coalesce an awful They tend to serve in, in, in regiments and even to the extent that they're serving in corps that are kind of being identified as Germans, the 11th of the army. The Irish do it to a certain degree, but they don't do it as much as the Germans. So you'll find Irish in almost any urban unit that is recruited in is certainly going to have sprinkling of Irish. But what you have then, and it's tended to dominate again the history, is you have specific units that are raised, what I call the green flag regiment, to be seen as markers of ethnic Irish identity. So the most famous of them by some distance is the Irish Brigade, which was led by Thomas Francis Marr, who um, was a, a had led um, been a leader of the 1848 Young Ireland Rebellion in Ireland and had gone been, uh, been um, um, sent to Tasmania and then had escaped to the United States and was kind of a hero of Irish America. And he forms the Irish Brigade, which is formed of three New York regiments initially, and it has a Massachusetts and a Pennsylvania regiment added to war progressive. And they are like, they've seen as the be all and end all really of Irish service. They're the most famous they were seen as the most famous then, so they do deserve their status on the top of the tree. Um, uh, but they've completely dominated Irish service. But the vast bulk of Irishmen actually didn't serve in units like the Irish Brigade. They served in ordinary um, units, sometimes at company level. So, so 60, 80, 100 men might band together an Irish community. Um, give you an example, a small town called Seneca Falls in New York, where they all do that. They come in as a, as a, as a group, an Irish company who serve in a wider regiment that isn't affiliated. So in, in the north, there's two of those brigade level formations made up of three regiments that are distinctly Irish, the Irish Brigade and Corcoran's Irish Legion. There's a plethora of regiments that are green flag across the northern states. Um, there's one in the south that, that kind of carries a green flag, 10 Tennessee, um, but a lot, an awful lot of them in states like New York, Pennsylvania, uh, Massachusetts, Illinois, all, all across. Um, but then this, this great bulk of them who are serving at a lower level than that and so are interacting with people who are not from their community a lot more and sometimes interacting with people who, who do not like them in the service. So people who had been drawn from this nativist, this anti-Irish, if you like, movement of the 1850s. And so they could often find themselves in units where they were being officers. So there's a really interesting uh, different degrees of Irish experience across the entire northern military because of the breadth of their service. And the next question is obviously incredibly difficult because it can be highly individual. But what motivated uh, soldiers once they had donned the blue uniform in, in the field? What kept them going through the perils of active service? Yeah, so I mean, it's a very interesting one for the for the Irish, particularly because I like, and my work would show that they are one of the most vulnerable groups in the northern military because of their economic precarity, largely, right? So, um, and and a lot of them have increased levels of financial responsibility to people at home because of just the circumstances of 
of their lives and their communities. So they tended to die more. They tended to have a lot of um, social problems because of their status in society and because they didn't have um, the opportunity, for example, to get long-term secure employment. And so you have these men at the front who are often getting an awful lot of problems from home. They're getting huge pressures put on them. Um, the military has this particularly bad problem um, during the American Civil War in that they are unable to pay these men regularly. So they're supposed to be paid every couple of months and they routinely fail to do this throughout the war. And so you have these sort of pressures that are put on all soldiers, north and south, um, but it impacts, uh, I would regard it as something that impacts these lower class men, obviously, to a much higher degree. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of strains on American service. And you do see things like their desertion rates tend to be slightly higher than those from other groups. Um, something that has been traditionally seen as because they didn't re- they weren't really that loyal to America. I see it in very stark economic terms. They weren't able to take not being paid in the army. But what is what is remarkable about it is how few of them actually desert given those uh, given those constraints. And what keeps them in really seems to be this very serious uh, sense of duty that they feel the nation and particularly you see it in, in a lot of their correspondence once they've taken the oath once they've done the uniform they see that as a job that they have got to do that they are obliged to do and they are willing to do it to whatever um, degree is necessary including giving their lives and so that, that's holding a lot of men in but you do see this growth um, of, of what's often termed esprit de corps in, in the military. So it's an important factor, actually, because it helps to mitigate a lot of the negative uh, aspects of people who don't like them. So I was mentioning about things like the office who, who may have been natives, who may hate Irish, may hate ca- Catholics, for example, but are then in command of a load of Irish within their units. And it's quite interesting when you look at specific examples of this, where you, you can actually see it mitigating their responses to, to these men because they are serving in combat was there they are seeing them up close and th- th- this 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 idea that they're all kind of part of the same team begins to emerge now I, I, we have to temper that a bit now the irish were much more in the U- northern military much more likely to uh, suffer severe punishment from their officers um much more likely to 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 not get the benefit of the doubt in situations from the officer class because of who they were and because of their class their ethnicity but we do see this unit cohesion beginning to develop as the war continued and one of the ways the irish do that um and and kind of maintain themselves through the course of the war and this is quite remarkable is that they coalesce with other ethnic irish wherever they meet them you see this again and again and again so you could have a company that's all drawn from a specific city or town and say there are five or ten Irish guys in it, they tend to coalesce, they tend to mess together, they tend to share the same um, tents. When they're riding home, it's these guys they're talking about, so this real small unit um, cohesion that you see. When they're going out, uh, they call it the touch of the elbow. When they're advancing, they often end up in, in beside other ethnically Irish, no matter what unit they're So it's kind of, it's multi-layers of, of this sense of duty, of how they're be able to, to cope with um, this nativism and, and how then they're bonding together with others, people from, from their own kind of background and, and, and ethnicity. And does the nature of motivation change in character intensity uh, over the war? I was just wondering, one thing we certainly learned when I was growing up, you know, that the US Civil War was about uh, abolition of slavery. Did that mm. motivate people at all? Yeah, well, it certainly didn't motivate the Irish. <laughs> so the, um, yeah, and I suppose to, to, to draw back a bit. So it is known as as the war for the abolition of slavery, which is uh, the greatest thing it achieved, if you like. But that is not. So the war is caused by slavery. It's uh, absolutely incontrovertible fact that that is what caused the war. 
it is not why a lot of men went to war in 1870. Uh, the, the thing that motivates the Irish to go to war is, um, from a, if, if you like, uh, a patriotic standpoint, if you want to call it that, is, is almost singular in terms of the preservation of the United States. So the, the two big topics that, that motivated people during the war were this preservation, and again, I'm speaking specifically about the preservation of the Union and for some, then there was emancipation of of, of African American. Um, but this preservation union, which is almost a hard concept for us to get our heads around uh, these days, was absolutely number one on the list, even for people like Abraham Lincoln. Um, and it, it was the idea that they, they couldn't allow the United States to be broken up um, for this great Republican experiment to to to, to collapse under the efforts of this handful of, of as they would have seen it, um, aristocratic, undemocratic. Southern planters trying to, to break it up. And a lot of Irish did view it that. Um, and so you do get a lot of blowback from the Irish. So the war advances from 1861 into 1862 when the preliminary emancipation proclamation is announced by Lincoln um, after the Battle of Antietam in September of 1862. Um, and, and that announces that from the 1st of January 1863, that any uh, African American, enslaved African American who is in a territory that is at war with the United States will be free. Um, and that completely alters the war. And you see an awful lot of Irish who, who have no interest in emancipation whatsoever fighting in the Northern military saying, oh, this isn't the war I signed up for. Um, but what, what, what doesn't seem to happen in, it's, it's seen as a major turning point for Irish recruitment um, and for recruitment generally. Um, that's not something that I, I see. Again, the you have significant numbers of Irish who are enlisting all during this period. You have men who are writing about how they have a terrible problem with abolitionists, with the prospect of fighting side by side with African-Americans. Um, they say quite incredible things like that they will kill any African-American that they, they are serving with. But when it comes to the crunch, they do none of those things. They stay where they are. Um, they continue to serve. They serve beside African-Americans. And, and so the, the idea of the union seems to override all of these other issues for them, even though they have a, a major problem. There's certainly a drop off across the north um, after that after that announcement. But it is interesting that they continue to serve in such significant numbers, even though as a community, they really do not have much time for that. What we now see is a principal war aim, but what they never saw in all was the preservation of the United States is what they want. And are there any sort of notable incidents of ill discipline? You've talked about desertion already amongst the Irish Americans. I think there's always been a reputation that Irishmen in America always had this sort of view of being drunk, which I'm sure was driven by a lot of racism and, and nativism. But did they have any major sort of disciplinary problems in the Union Army or their units during this? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And the alcohol one is a major one that was always associated with the Irish and the Germans, um, but the Irish in particular, it's seen as... So, so there was this kind of idea that the Irish were fantastic if you could just get them into the field and point them at the enemy this idea that they loved fighting the Celtic warrior um, and uh, so sometimes even when they were performed well you would get natives saying well you know they only charged that position because somebody had lost their, their bot over the other side and they were trying to get it back so you get this sort of element of of uh, of, of nativism uh, and there was certainly lots of drinking right so it's something I specifically looked at but there were lots of drinking that the, the, the military in this that these, a lot of these guys were absolutely awash in alcohol. Um, but what, what's notable is it was actually very difficult to get it. So they would go on sprees if they were in and around a town or a city, um, if they could get it off the suckler, you know, the, 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 the merchant kind of attached to a lot of the regiments, if they could get it. But when they were on campaign, it just wasn't there to be had. Um, and so a lot of that reputational um, issue is actually there's been some fantastic work done in it. I would I would agree with the conclusions because you see them. It's a there's a major major class divide in America between the officer class 
who are these kind of middle and upper class guys, and then these lower class men who have different, they're, they're all drinking when they have the opportunity. There's different reputational things with alcohol. There's a different way that they engage with alcohol. Um, and, and so that lack of understanding of each other leads to an awful lot of friction during the, between, between this different class. And so a lot of what's reported is based around that, that kind of class conflict where Irish from New York and stuff would be classified as what they called roughs or rowdies, completely uncontrollable. And there are incidences where, you know, guys are killed because they're, they're drunk. They fall down hatchways of ships. Um, they shoot um, other um, guys when they're on sentry duty because they're drunk. And, you know, you see, you see, you do see a good bit of that. Um, so they undoubtedly did drink plenty when they could get it. There isn't any evidence, though, to suggest that they were in any way out of control, that the, any any of that kind of mythology that built up around them was, was accurate. Um, most units had issues with their men when they were in camp trying to keep them in check and trying to stop the drink. Most units had disciplinary infractions when men felt that they weren't getting a fair deal from, from the army. And you do see some of the Irish units doing things like that, um, but you see a lot of units doing it. So a lot of the, the nature of the American military and its volunteer-led and the nature of the American state at that time meant that a lot of men who were in the ranks did not see their office as in any, any way better than them. they didn't see them as people who they had to follow blindly into battle. They saw it more as this kind of contract that these people were supposed to, to, to be leading them in a in an efficient way as kind of equals who, who are doing it. And when that contract, as they see it, is broken, then you have issues. You have problems where guys are going, well, no, we're not going to follow this office. And the Irish do that on a couple of occasions. But but again, it's something you see across them. So a lot of it is class based. Um, things like the the Things like the drinking were there, but they have been blown into out of opera when you actually spree drinking was the big thing then. You see these the guys, the idea of guys going on spree when they might suddenly find themselves in close proximity to a barrel of whiskey and then all hell might break. I think true of lots of military around the world at this period. And my final question, Damien, is where can people learn more? Yeah, so there's some some good resources. I suppose I would direct people um to my website if they're that there's uh www.irishamericancivilwar.com. Um there's about I think it's six six hundred articles now of different elements of the Irish experience that are on there touching on some of the topics um, that, that we've got. Um, for, for the general history of the Irish and the Union military, there's an awful lot of really good work. Um, I'd give particular shout outs to people like Professor Susanna Ural, Dr. Ryan, um, Dr. Will Kurtz, who've done really good work on, uh, on the Irish. Um, I have a couple of books as well, kind of more general books on the Irish and the American Civil War. For anyone interested in Confederacy, Professor David Gleason has written the main book on the Irish and the Confederacy. There's a full bibliography of Irish as well on, on my site, so you can kind of delve into any aspect you want on that. They're probably the best. Damien, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Tom.